Let's go. Let's go. Oh, oh did you want to? Sorry. sorry. I'll let you. I'll let you. Next time. I'm in love with you. Snap out of it. I'll have what she's having. Too many guys think of a concept or I complete them or I'm going to make them alive. I'm just a fucked up girl who's looking for my own peace of mind. Don't assign me yours. Caustic wit is my religion. I would make a great queen because I am so stubborn. I say when it comes to stardom and Lauren, there are no accidents. Hi, Karen Peterson. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 149 of Citizen Dame, the podcast where we just really, really want people to educate themselves and watch movies because movies are good, even when they're bad. I'm Karen Peterson, joined, as always, by the amazing Lauren Humphreys Brooks. Hello. Hi. Mm, yes movies are good even when they're bad that's true there's true in so many different levels actually yeah yeah you know so how are you Lauren I'm doing all right it's been a week uh but I feel like that every week has been a week so (laughs) every week has been a week since like at least 2016. So I, much, I guess it's yeah. pretty much the same, only only different, because who knows <laughs> what we're going to be arguing about next week. I look forward to rehashing many, many arguments constantly over the course of, you know, many days. Is Scorsese a, a director? I don't know. <laughs> Is he? I'm still waiting for, because I know it's coming one of these days. <laughs> Steven Spielberg's 1941 is good, actually, or something like <laughs> I think, that. Yeah. I've seen that actually already. <laughs> it hasn't gotten much traction, but eventually it will, and it, it will be catch like on. an extensive debate. Um, but you know who won't catch on to it is anybody who doesn't watch movies made before like 1980. So <laughs> I guess we're okay because the kids old won't. movies, <laughs> old movies. I don't know what old movies are black and white movies that's the other thing so it's like black and white movies okay what does that mean so is gone with the window kicks it's not a black and white movie yeah um him <laughs> and the wizard of oz is only a little bit black and white and the wizard and, of oz is good uh murder in the wax museum which is like 19 i've never seen that one 1930 the, the original one 1931 1932 it's and it's it was filmed in like um it's two strip technicolor so it was really really expensive wow um but it's like one of the one of a very early example of like a completely technicolor film the entire film is technicolor um yeah that's but that's in color so obviously that one's okay uh, yeah yeah even though it was made in like 1931 <laughs> <laughs> well it depends on who you talk to because for some people the cutoff is 1975 which i guess means the godfather is not worth watching true the godfather um was uh, a taxi driver 76 I yeah, think. yeah so so taxi driver just gets in mm-hmm. just mean streets not so much no which i'm guessing that person won't get mean streets anyway so <laughs> that's fine please stay away from it <laughs> So if you don't know what we're talking about, <laughs> you're obviously not on film Twitter and good for you. <laughs> Bravo. Oh, uh, yeah. It was yet another week where pe- people who like to talk about and write about movies showed how stupid and, well, uneducated they have chosen to be about such movies. So. We don't want to spend a lot of time rehashing this yet again because we talk about a lot and it can best be summed up as just watch more fucking movies. But um, 
I think that this conversation is important. And Lauren, you had a great thread last night addressing this very issue. So, oh, thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, this this is first of all, this is Black History Month, so it's interesting that this particular topic came up again. Um, the the I think the thing that really set a lot of people off. There were a number of different tweets that seemed to all coalesce into one thing. Yeah. Um, but the the one that, that set everybody off that set a lot of people off was was this this thing like oh i don't watch black and white movies because um they're all racist and sexist and of course this immediately kind of provoked a lot of different responses but one of the things that that um a number of people talked about including myself uh was that you know that's not true <laughs> Right. <laughs> so, and and to, to to kind of continue to carry on with that, it's not necessarily that, yes, there are a lot of racist and sexist films, and there's a lot of racism and sexism contained within films that were made in the 20s and 30s and 40s and up to today. Um, so, and that's not saying that that, that was okay or that, that we should excuse it, but there were also a lot of other types of films that were being made. And there were films that were actually pushing back on that. And, and that's one of the things that we're gonna talk about today. Um, the other thing is that, yes, there was racism and sexism in these films and we need to talk about that. So the example that I used in, in my tweet thread, which I was very, I did not expect people to, a lot of people responded to it, which I was really happy about in like a positive way. Um, unusual on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, you never know what's going to happen when you put that stuff uh, out there. <laughs> I woke up this morning and I was like, oh no, oh God, oh click, oh, people are being very nice for the most part, that's lovely. Um, but but so one, the example that I used was Spike Lee. Uh, and, and if you look at a lot of Spike Lee's films, um, he engages very, expli- very explicitly, very clearly with uh, the cinematic past, and particularly with the past of, of American cinema and um, and uh, and Hollywood, uh, and the two that came up was Black Klansman, which features, which talks directly about Birth of a Nation, um, and the other one is Bamboozled, which deals again with kind of a broad spectrum of racism in in Hollywood films. And the point of all this is that Spike Lee couldn't make a lot of the films that he makes if he didn't have this knowledge of of film history. So he's seen Birth of a Nation, he's seen uh, Gone with the Wind, you know, he, and not only has he seen them, but he's engaging with them in his films and he's talking about them and he's criticizing them as he should be, but he's not denying their existence or saying, well, I'm a black man, I don't want to talk about this or I don't want to deal with this as as a black artist. He's actually saying, I have to deal with this as a black artist at some level because this is a part of cinema. Um, And this is, and and not just a part of cinema but a part of American history. And I think that we tend to forget that, that film doesn't invent, uh, you know, film doesn't invent racism. It doesn't invent sexism. It expresses, some things that are already there embedded in the culture. And it can also elevate them to a certain degree. One of the problems with Birth of a Nation is not just that it is an incredibly racist film, but it is actually atypically racist for the period. There were protests when Birth of a Nation was released against its racism because of the way that it depicted black people and the way that it depicted um, the Civil War, the way that it depicted the antebellum South. 
Uh, and we tend to forget that we we like look at it so like oh everybody was thinking like this like no this was actually atypical, but one of the things that it did was it elevated the KKK into these like heroes. Um, the KKK, so, which had basically been gone for years before this yeah, movie came out. Yeah, and so and so it is an important film, and I I think that one of the problems one of the things that um, a number of the people who were talking about this were addressing that there's a legitimate conversation to have, which is that we're almost taught to watch these things passively. Mm-hmm. That, and this this even includes in film school. I remember learning about Birth of a Nation in film school, uh, and I'd seen it before because I, I had taken um, I'd taken classes in cinema and everything. But it's always talked about as like this is a really racist film. Um, but also it's important for X, Y, and Z reasons because, you know, continuity editing and cross-cutting and all of this stuff. And you watch this film, it's like, okay, but we need to engage with this much more critically. We can't just say like, oh, we're going to ignore the racist parts, Mm -hmm. which in Birth of a Nation is very difficult to do. Right. Um, But something similar goes on with Gone with the Wind where it has been valorized uh, in a lot of ways and kind of elevated. It's like, oh, it's this great movie. Um, with, you know, great performances and it's this epic technicolor fantasy, right? And we kind of, you know, try to try to not even talk about the part where it, it glorifies um, slavery, it glorifies the antebellum South, it glorifies the South generally um, as like this great lost civilization or something. And that's not saying that um, Gone with the Wind has no value or that Birth of a Nation has no value. It does. And but we have to engage with these films critically. We can't just passively consume them and, and just absorb whatever, whatever they want to teach us. Right. Because in in that case, yeah, we're all going to be racists because if, if all we're doing is watching racist films and we're not thinking about why they're racist or what they mean, uh, we're, we're just going to be like, Oh yeah. Black people are animals basically. Cause that's the way that those films represent them. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and sometimes quite literally, often yeah. quite literally. And well, I, I think one of the hangups that people have, and this is just a guess, I don't know, but I think when we talk about films, particular films being important, um, I think that that gives people the mistaken impression that we're condoning the messages of them, that we're saying they're good. And that is not the case. Something can be important and also be really bad. And which there's lots of examples of that. And birth of nation is a perfect one, you know, and that's the thing. We don't watch birth of the nation because we like it or because we like anything that it stands for. We watch it because it's something that, like you said, was integral to the early foundations of cinema Mm -hmm. and therefore it matters, but not for the thematic reasons that people. Yeah ignore it for i well and i also think that it, it matters because it is a very stark document of racism in cinema yeah um it's a lot actually unfortunately it's a lot easier to ignore the racism in gone with the wind which in some ways makes gone with the wind more insidious mm-hmm. you can't ignore the racism in birth of a nation right um 
Uh, you know, well, and I think Hattie McDaniel winning an Oscar also kind of hurt that too. Be hurt that yeah. that discussion because then it's like, well, do you take that away from her? That would be horrible, you know. And well, and- yeah, exactly. And and I I think that this is this is where we we have to we have to engage with these films. And I and I'm saying this not just as people who are filmmakers uh, like Spike Lee or Martin Scorsese or whoever else, um, or Alexei Alexander. Uh, <laughs> or people like us who are critics and who, who are really interested in looking at these things critically, but also just as viewers. Um, there's been this tendency to simply be like, either everything must be completely unproblematic or it's not worth anything. And not only is it not worth anything, but we shouldn't even, we shouldn't even watch it. We shouldn't pay attention to it in any capacity. We should just and, pretend it doesn't exist. Yeah, and that's wrong because it it, it is it's it's ignorance it's deci- it's choosing to be ignorant of the past of cinema it's choosing to not think critically about art to not think critically about this this medium that is one of the most influential mediums in the world i mean this is almost every nation on the planet has its own national cinema um and america in particular has exported its view of filmmaking its view of cinema all across the world. So we've tried and, and often have failed, thank God, to dominate the world market in the, ma- in the production of films. And so we have to engage with those things. You know, the racism contained in Birth of a Nation or Gone with the Wind is integral to the United States. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's the way that we look at and view our own history. Um, this was just something I just thought of, but a, a couple of weeks ago, my friend Anita texted me asking about The Searchers, uh, which is the John Ford film from like ni- 1952, something like that with John Wayne. And, and Natalie Wood. And Natalie Wood, yeah. And now this is a film that has often been praised at the way that it represents um, uh, Native Americans and the way that it represents kind of the villainous nature of the the villainous nature of the heroes in the film. But what she was saying was like, this is really horrible. Uh, and I was like, well, yeah, it, it kind of is. And, but you, and we also have to look at it within the historical context. It's one of the first films to really begin to break down the concept of the heroic Western. Um, and the, the, na- you know, the quotation marks and natives as savages. Uh, and so it's important in a historical context, but if we look at it through the eyes of 2020 viewers uh, or 2021 viewers, we're like, yeah, this is, this is ra- it's still racist. Like Natalie Wood and uh, I can't remember the guy who plays Scar and that, but they're white people. <laughs> like mm-hmm. these are not, you know, natives or anything like that. These are not, um, and they're still villains, right? Scar is still the villain. Uh, and, and he's a rapist and he like kills people and all of this stuff. Um, but we, does that make The Searchers not an important film? Does that make The Searchers not important to see from a historical context? No, it doesn't. And it, it's important to criticize it too. It's important to say that, this, that there's something wrong with it and here is what is wrong with it. At the same time, understanding where it comes from historically and maybe why it's important within the history of cinema. Yeah, I think we just have this tendency, and I don't mean you and I, but just the collective, like, just people have this tendency of, if I'm a fan of something, that means that I, I like only, you know, I only engage with the aspects of it that I like, 
you know, I'm a sports fan. I like the 49ers. I like the Angels. Do I spend my time watching a, a Braves game? No, because I don't care about the Braves. And the problem is that's something completely different. But we see that same attitude with people who call themselves cinephiles. They're like, I don't like this type of film or I don't like that era of film. So I'm just not going to engage with it at all. And it's so it's such a willing and overt act of refusing to educate yourself. And I just I know we've talked about this a lot and I know we've said this a lot, but I just do not understand how people who want to build a career writing about film or even if they don't want to build a career, but they want to, you know, really, they're really interested in, in film and they love movies. I don't understand how people can willfully choose to just only try to watch things that they like and that they are particularly interested in. Yeah, or, or even to, to never step outside the comfort zone. And, and it does definitely say that you're not thinking about these films critically. Because I, I have to say, the Marvel movies have a political perspective. Uh-huh. The Marvel movies have a perspective on race and on gender and on sexuality. Yep. Uh, you might not want to talk about that. And you might not want to think about them in those terms. But that's what they, they have that. That exists, right? Mm-hmm. So these are the popular films of of our era, right? And 20 years from now, they're gonna be talked about in the same way that we're talking about films that were made in in 2000, the same way we're talking about films that were made in 1980, 1970, 1920. Um, These are films that we have to engage with critically. And if, and that's that's the thing, if you refuse to, we have uh, the benefit of hindsight right now when we look at older films. We know what the cultural context is for them. We know what the historical context is for them. We know maybe why they were made or what was cut out, right? And so we can look back on them. We can understand them from that perspective. So we can look back at Gone with the Wind and be like, that's racist, right? Mm -hmm. We need to be able to do that with the films that are being made right now. And part of the way you begin to recognize and understand how to critically analyze films is to be able to look back at, at the origins of cinema. Um, and talk about those because maybe it's more obvious, you know, maybe the racism to you is more obvious and gone with the wind than it is in um, Exodus, right? Uh, And, but you can't completely understand the racism that might be inherent in Exodus uh, if you don't spend any time actually thinking about, okay, well, why would this be racist? Why would this be something that we should talk about? I, I don't know. It's a weird, it's a weird attitude that people take. And I find it particularly weird when you're talking about filmmakers who are like, oh, I don't watch old movies. Like, so how do, do you make films? Like, do you mm-hmm. just not like your own medium? I'm so confused by this. Yeah. I mean, it's one thing because we hear this sometimes with actors where they just, they don't really watch TV or they don't watch movies. I know a bunch of people boys we'll say boys were mad about Gwyneth Paltrow not knowing how many of the Marvel movies she was in because like she doesn't watch them they're not her thing and that's okay her job is to act in them not to love them and it's like I mean I do think anybody who's in the business should 
at least have some level of education about it. But she's not the one writing the stories and telling the stories. So it's not up to her to know all the ins and outs of it, you know, and that's okay. But if, if John Favreau, who did the first Iron Man and a couple of the other stuff, like if he didn't know anything about the history of comic movies or, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of thing, then it, it would suffer. His film would suffer. It would be really obvious in the work. Well, and also Gwyneth Paltrow, you know, and I, I don't know how much, but but a lot of actors do study acting. Yeah. Right. They watch other performances. They watch yeah. other actors. They watch, uh, you know, they they go to they take classes on acting. Mm-hmm. They learn about acting from other people who have acted in the past. And that's, right. you know, uh, and Martin Scorsese was, again, um, discussed this one <laughs> this week. But, you know, you talk about someone who has a deep deep knowledge of film history not just hollywood history but like history that i i like he he i i he he recently released like 50 of his favorite british films and like half of them i was like i have no idea i've never even heard Mm -hmm. of that film like i don't know just like oh and then at one point i was like wait a minute there's a version of uncle silas that was made in 1947 oh my god it has gene simmons in it like yeah it was but but so scorsese has this very long um, engagement with cinema and that's how he learned really to be a filmmaker he went to film school and he learned how to be and he learned the technical aspects of it from there but he also critically watched films and he watched a lot of them from a lot of different cultures from a lot of different eras and and you can see that richness in his work um Spike Lee as as we I was, you know, as we were just saying, is uh, engages directly with the history of cinema in his movies. And that's the way that great filmmakers do operate. That's the way, that's the way the Fellini operated, for God's sake. You know, Alfred Hitchcock mm. learned by, uh, by watching silent films. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and then made his own. Yeah. Well, and, and just to go back to what you're saying, too, about, you know, we don't engage with these films critically. It's like, I can't even tell you how many conversations I've had with people who are aspiring to get into the world of of film criticism or podcasting or whatever. And so they'll just like binge tons of movies like, oh, I watched five movies today or we see this at film festivals, too. And it's like, okay, yeah, you watched them. But how much did you really engage your brain when you're watching that many movies in that short of amount of time? You know, I mean, I'll regularly like I'll have the TV on while I'm doing stuff and I'll, you know, quote unquote, watch three or four or five movies in a day, but I'm not really watching them. And there are movies that I've seen a hundred times, because if it's something that I've never seen before, I want to give it my attention and I want to be able to think about it. And I need some time afterwards to process what I've watched and to really, you know, contemplate it. And, and I just, when, when people, rush through a whole bunch of things they're not giving themselves time to do that yeah just another one of those things that just frustrates me and so it's like it's not enough to just sit and watch you know some of the films that we're going to talk about today you need to give yourself time to really ponder them read some of the things that people have written about them watch some interviews whatever to really give yourself enough proper context um not just for how you feel and and react to that film and how it works today but how it was received when it was first released you know because that matters too 
Yeah, and and I think that we also have to note that because um, there, there's a lot of talk about the canon and, go, and people going to film school and things like that, and there's a lot of problems with the canon, um, definitely. And one of the things that we need to note is that, you know, we, when we say, oh, all black and white movies are racist and sexist, that means that you're watching very specific ones. Mm-hmm. Um, and very often they're the ones that are contained within the canon. So if you're talking about, so Gone with the Wind, you know, it's, it's a great example. Same thing, to be honest, same thing with Casablanca. Um, mm-hmm. Casablanca has some very problematic racial stereotypes. Yep. Uh, but at the same time as Gone with the Wind or Birth of a Nation. There were films that were being made by Black people, by women, um, by queer people. uh, And sometimes they were flying under the radar because, you know, someone like James Whale, who directed Frankenstein and The Old Dark House, got in kind of these humorous references and jokes and queerness into his films that kind of got past people a little bit. Um, but was all, but also was definitely recognized by some viewers. Uh, someone like the the director that we're going to talk about today, Oscar Michaud, um, he made films that were in direct reaction to the racism of Hollywood and the representation of Black people in cinema at that time. Uh, but we don't talk about him as much, you know. I. I we said this, I think, a while ago that, you know, if you're going to teach Birth of a Nation, you really should be teaching within our gates at the same time Mm -hmm. Um, to show the counterpoint, to show that, you know, it wasn't just this one dominant narrative. There were other narratives going on at the same time. And that really, when you begin to look at it, we've talked about it in terms of female filmmakers a lot as well. When you begin to look at it, it, it's much more varied and much more complicated than I think we want it to be almost. We want to say like, okay, this was a time of racism and now we are no longer racist, or this was a time of sexism and now we're no longer sexist. That's not what was going on. There was a lot of really unique things happening in in the silent period, in uh, classical Hollywood, in the 1970s and today. Um, You know, we talked about Mae West last week. Mae West is like the the sexually explicit uh, star who made her career out of being that way. And she got driven under because of the code and because of fear, primarily from white male patriarchy. But she was there, like her films should not be canceled because she was making them in the 1930s and they're black and white. So therefore they must be sexist. I mean, watch Mae West films and tell me that these are not, you know, far more progressive actually than some comedies being made today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So mm. let's talk about, <laughs> so let's talk about um, some of these early pioneers and uh, particularly Oscar Michaud. Um, we, of course, in uh, again, Fritzy from movie silently, has done a very extensive and great job of proving why all the things that we think we know about Birth of a Nation are wrong, that it was not the first feature film, that it was not the first film shown at the White House. Like, um, But, of course, white dudes get to write history most of the time. So um, that's just kind of where we're at. But there was a lot of... Um, a lot of filmmaking happening in the early part of the 1900s um, coming from black filmmakers. So let's talk a little bit about 
about that um, and kind of where Oscar Michaud came from, because he was definitely the, I would say he was the most influential um, during the time that he was working, which he started, his first film was 1919 and uh, made films for a couple of decades so um let's talk about first of all what was um what was the culture around filmmaking in um uh, when it came to black cinema we know that um a lot of the very early silent films especially if they had black characters they were um either extremely racist stereotypical depictions they were white people in blackface, a lot of that kind of thing. But Lauren, why don't you talk a little bit about some of that early, um, the early history? The early history. Well, yeah, I, I don't have as in, as uh, deep a knowledge, I think, as, as some people do about this period. And part of this is because I've come to this really, really late. Like I say, I went, I went to film school and this was just not something that was talked about when I was there. I really hope, I've not looked at curriculum recently, but I really hope that it's being talked about a lot more. Um, and, and granted, I was also focusing on particular things within cinema that I was interested in, but it, it meant that I missed a lot. Uh, but yeah, the, the silent period, as we've talked about before, um, was a very much in the United States and elsewhere, it was very much the Wild West. I mean, there wasn't the same kind of centralized um, system that we now have and that eventually developed in the 1920s and then into the 30s. Um, so, which meant that there was a little bit more flexibility for filmmakers like Oscar Michaud, who was outside of uh, the outside of mainstream. But if you look at um, films made by white filmmakers, uh, people like D.W. Griffith in that early period. And, and, that all, and this also extends to, to people like Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin and Cecil B. DeMille. Uh, and to be honest, um, some of Lois Weber, some of the early female filmmakers, white female filmmakers, uh, you know, black, a lot of the, the depictions of black people were very what you would expect, I guess, uh, a lot of caricatures, a lot of minstrelly um, uh, images, like you say, white people in blackface, but also black actors being sort of shoehorned into these roles as comedic relief or villains or a combination of the two. Um, you know, you you see, and I, Birth of a Nation is is perhaps one of the most prevalent examples where you're, for the most part, you're talking about white people in blackface. Um, but even there are a number of films that were made uh, with primarily black cast, but you've still got this kind of, I, I, I'm trying to, I'm searching for the word, it's not just comedic, it's, it's caricature-ish. Yeah. Um, black people as kind of these jokes, you know, the, all of those, all of those stereotypes of like eating fried chicken and watermelon sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing when you watch it, but you, you have to also think about the fact that these are black actors who have been more or less pushed into these roles. Um, if they have larger roles, they're very often playing servants, maids, butlers, chauffeurs, farm workers, et cetera. When you have someone like Oscar Michaud, Michaud's whole project was really was to a degree a reaction against the, the 
dominance of white filmmaking and the way that black people were depicted. And he, I believe even said that he wanted to give black people on screen dignity, um, which he, uh, and he's absolutely right, which he did not see in a lot of the white films that were being made. Um, and he's he's actually fairly successful in in terms of as a black filmmaker who is out working outside of a system. Uh, and these were and a lot of his films were shown in white cinemas. So this he was, for lack of a better word, he was one of the early crossover filmmakers. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, because uh, for a lot of the time, especially during the studio system and stuff, they had these films that they called race films. Yeah which were the the movies by and and about black people so uh and he was one of the uh one of the biggest names in in making those race films but he also made commercially successful films that played for white audiences too so um yeah it's a very interesting thing one of the things that and this is not, I'm not in any way excusing the depictions or anything like that when I say this. But I think one of the things that I find interesting in looking at a lot of these older films, um, also by white filmmakers, not, I'm not talking about Birth of a Nation, because that had a very specific um, intention. But just in general, like when you see these these films that just have like the black maid or, um, you know, or, or whatever it is, they don't <laughs> they don't try to whitewash the the society. They don't try to pretend that black people don't exist in their communities. Unlike <laughs> today, where we True. have so many, like how many movies have you seen that are set in New York where you're like, is New York entirely white? What's going on here? <laughs> you know, and those are movies I, now. <laughs> no, New York is not entirely white. No, and neither maybe is Los certain parts, <laughs> Maybe certain parts of Manhattan, uh, but... No, no. Usually, <laughs> very often in my neighborhood, I'm the only white person on the subway. <laughs> but that's what I, I, I think. And it, it, it's, like I said, it's not in any way to excuse the way that they were portray portrayed, the way that they were used in cinema. But I do find it interesting that in a time where we kind of would have expected it to be very whitewashed and very just like, you know, ignoring the existence of other people, they chose not to. I mean, yeah, that, that is a good point. I think that the, the problem is, is, of course, that they're relegating Black people to very, very pigeonholed roles, yeah. very stereotypical roles, and, and are very often mocking them. Right. And that's where it's um, like, okay, so is that is that the only reason that those people are in the movies? Is it because they're trying to um, teach the viewers, like this is what you do <laughs> with, I, I th with black people or I, I think that a lot of it is is very is telegraphing certain things and it, it probably depends it probably goes from movie to movie but um you know if if you're talking about sort of the comic relief black maid or black chauffeur right uh the the sort of the um uh, and the, the Sambo character the step and fetch it character mm -hmm. uh very often these are non-threatening people Right. So they're not going, they're, they're not the dangerous black people, which we could talk about right. in a minute, but they're, they're comedic. They're stupid. They're there to be laughed at. Mm -hmm. um, 
and they're they're treated in a certain way by the white characters and I, I also think sometimes they're there to elevate the status of the white characters yeah um and so for instance we're you know when we were talking about Mae West last week uh, she often in her films plays a character who has a black maid mm-hmm. um and now sometimes the relationship between the characters is is more nuanced than what you very often get in the 1930s and in, in um uh in those kinds of films but it's still very problematic it's still like she is an important person or a wealthy person because she has this black woman who works for her um and and again and there's very often these racist jokes or um you know stereotypical performances etc yeah uh and then and then you can get into some of the more um so there, the, those are sort of the safe black people, the black people that are not really a threat to to the white overclass, right? Mm-hmm. And then you get into the black people that are, uh, and they're and they're the criminals, uh, or they're the ones that are um, aspiring aspiring to be white at some level, you know, at least within within the context of the culture, aspiring to power or money or something they're greedy and grasping and they're they're dangerous you know one of the things that um gets brought up in birth of a nation is that uh, black men are all rapists they're all animals right right um and so so that's that's the other side of blackness in particularly in white films and you do get variation and you do get uh black actors and i think that we should talk about paul robeson in a minute Mm -hmm. um who were stars and who were very important um actors and did kind of begin to push the boundaries of what was allowed what black people were allowed to do in films yeah um in mainstream films at least but you've got that kind of dichotomy of they're either comedic and non-threatening or they're dangerous villains who are going to rape the white women and steal money from everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's just, it's, it's part of, yeah, it comes back to, this is part of why like we need to look at these things and look at how, um, how they were depicted and what that says about where we were as a society, because what our films show and the films that that are coming out in certain eras that says a lot about the culture of that time and the people not just the people who were making and and starring in these movies but the people who were consuming them and this is you know it's important to know what their experiences were with seeing these films and 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 yeah and kind of what they what sort of messages they were getting because we know that film can be a very influential medium. It can enact change for positive or for negative. And I mean, if it wasn't, then propaganda wouldn't really exist, you know? And um, so it's, this is why it's like, you don't have to like these films, but you need to watch them if you want to better understand history which I guess maybe some people don't want to understand history either, but that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, let's talk about Oscar Michaud mm-hmm. specifically. Um, he was born in the late 1800s, uh, like 1890s, I think. Um, uh, yeah, that sounds right. He 1884. 
and I think he was the youngest of 11 children born to his parents were both former slaves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, so he was born in Illinois or near. Yeah, he was born in Illinois, but grew up in Kansas. And um, eventually he kind of worked his way along. He made his own way in life. He uh, set up a shoe shining business. He worked as a porter um he bought a farm in south dakota and became a writer that was where he first started writing stories and so then it was and all of this information is accessible in some really great places um naacp.org has a has a nice little write-up about him and um so that's a good place to go and of course criterion does too tcm has essays about him as well um so, yeah, so then he decided to start making films and he started off by adapting his own story into a feature film. So that was 1919 was his first movie, The Homesteader, it was a silent picture. Um, and yeah, Lauren, what, what can you tell us about The Homesteader? Uh, I don't know anything about that, unfortunately. <laughs> um, I have not seen it, and I'm not sure if it's available. I'm I don't think that it's available on uh, on Criterion at the moment. Um, there are a number of his films that are available on Criterion. The, the biggest one that uh, the, the people tend to talk about is, is the reaction to Birth of a Nation, which is both true and not true. And really it should be viewed as its own film as well, but it does have some interesting dialogue with the way that Griffith depicted black people in Birth of a Nation and white people for that matter, mm -hmm. um, is within our gates. Yes. Uh, which is, is uh it's his it was so this would be his second silent film it was produced in 1920 um and according to him this was more a response to the social issues following world war one not really a response to griffith although you can definitely see the, the conversation that the film is having so the story is about a a, a woman who decides to um a, a black woman who decides to uh return to she goes to boston but then she ends up going back part of the film is partially told in flashback but then she ends up going right, back right, to the yeah. deep south and i'm not certain whether they ever specify the state that's what i was looking for um but then she goes back to the deep south in order to establish a school for black children so mm -hmm. that they could be educated and um and not have to suffer in the same way that she had to suffer and so a lot of the film is actually about um social mobility and her kind of trying to give greater chances to the children of sharecroppers and to the children of poor blacks in the deep south um, because she has been given the opportunity to learn and to be educated and to become a teacher. This film also involves um, a attempted rape by a white landlord that is only stopped and spoiler alert when she discovers that this man is her father. Mm -hmm. So, and this, uh, this scene is, is really shocking, but what is, I think, most 
intense about it is that you realize that a lot of it is a reference to the attempted rape sequence in um, Birth of a Nation when Lily, uh, Lillian Gish, I believe, is, is trapped in a cabin and there are these black men who are coming after her and they want to rape her. This is actually showing what is much more the reality of, of the period, uh, which is that this black woman is being um, accosted and and attempt and assaulted by this white man who really only stops when they realize that they're related. Uh, it's it's a it's a fascinating film. It does have um, most of the prints of it are still kind of um, are incomplete. So you can see that there's obviously pieces of the film that have sort of been elided over or there are missing scenes and missing frames, but it's an incredibly powerful film. And I, I don't necessarily think you have to have seen Birth of a Nation in order to see Within Our Gates and, and understand its power. But the dialogue that forms between the two films is what is very fascinating. And it's, it's important to note that this film exists and that this is actually fairly highly, it's a very well-made film, um, particularly on a very low budget. Uh, and it, it should definitely be regarded at the same level as Birth of a Nation and is, is definitely more representative of the reality of blackness and whiteness in the United States at that time than um, anything the Birth of a Nation tries to depict. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is this the film that was basically lost, but then they found it in Spain? Was that the one? This may have been that one. There are, uh... And then they like they had to reconstruct the yeah. titles, I think. That... Yeah. Yeah, it was found a single print was discovered in Spain in the 1970s. Yeah. And there's a missing sequence um, and and only a few of the intertitles survive. So that's why the film is, a, you can tell where the sequence comes in and you can tell where the intertitles have been lost and they've kind of tried to reconstruct it. Uh, so yeah, it's it's a, a fantastic film. The, the other one that's kind of a, a a relationship to it's very similar in a lot of ways is um, Symbol of the Unconquered, which is a slightly, I believe it's a slightly later film than Within Our Gates, but it, it tells a similar story and deals with, um, deals with a black man uh, kind of, or black woman moving back to, to the deep South and um, a black man who is a homesteader. <laughs> Uh, and their sort of relationship and the history behind their relationship and everything. But this film directly involves the KKK and the attack of the KKK, who is basically, they're trying to get the land away from, from the man, uh, essentially. So this is like a combination of the white landowners and the KKK kind of coming together and being like, well, we're going to basically steal it from him. Um, what is very disappointing about some of the unconquered is that there is a huge sequence that is missing and it's the climax of the film. Oh no. Um, and what you get, and it drove me crazy when I watched this on Criterion, I recommend watching the film anyways, but you get like all of this, like, Oh, we're going to have this big fight. Right. And in the, it, right at the climax of this film, it goes to like, you know, in the next sequence, uh, so-and-so attacks the KKK with a brick. And I'm like, wait a minute, you mean to tell me that we have a black man 
beating the shit out of KKK uh, riders with a brick and it's missing. Oh it's missing. That is not fair history. That is incredibly <laughs> unfair. So mean. Hopefully one day someone will find it magically like locked away in a vault, perfectly preserved. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a good film. I, I mean, like it, it has a lot of other things to recommend it. And I was interested to see mm-hmm. like the actual representation of the KKK by a black filmmaker. Yeah. Um, but I was so disappointed. I was like, no, no, show me the brick. <laughs> I want to see this shit. Yeah, seriously. So let's talk a little bit about the common themes that we see throughout Oscar Micheaux's films. Not just, um, I mean, it's important that he was, uh, I don't know if allowed is the right word. Because, I mean, he was making independent films. And when you're yeah, making formed, independent films, you can do what you want. He formed his own production company. I yeah. Mean, this, like, he, this, this was his work. Uh, right. And I think that that's part of why he's lesser known in a lot of ways than some of the white filmmakers. He was completely working outside of um, a system that only was just beginning to exist in that Mm -hmm. period in Hollywood. Yeah. And so that also not only limited his ability to make movies. Well, I mean, obviously his ability wasn't limited because he made many of them, but um, the quality would, would have been not as, as high as some of the other films that were being made at that time that had more money backing them. Um, It would have been a bigger challenge for him to get them distributed into theaters. And like he had he had obstacles that other filmmakers didn't have. And one of the biggest obstacles of all was preservation. And so um, even we do still have a number of his films today, but a lot of them are incomplete or degraded. um, Like you know watching within our gates it's it's beautiful but there are parts where it's like the film stock is so dark now and it's it's hard to even make out like trees and things like that you know so that's one of the that's one of the things that's just too bad when you don't have money backing you but we also know that we lose such a huge percentage of films as we go from one medium to another uh in the way that we store and keep our own movies so um i yeah so i hope that his films will ultimately be among the ones that survive into you know whatever comes after streaming i don't know (laughs) but um but yeah no sorry so let's talk about some of his uh his themes that we see in a lot of his films i think one of them is definitely education he has characters black characters who are seeking education for themselves for their children um wanting to seeing that and understanding that education is the way to a better life yeah he he definitely represents the the desire to be educated and the importance of education as a way of again lifting the black community Mm -hmm. um and and it's it's a pretty it's a pretty not I, I don't want to say typical because that sounds like it's minimizing what he's talking about um but it's a pretty it, yeah it is a pretty typical attitude that like the way that you get out of a cycle of poverty and and violence is to become educated to learn how to read um to learn how to read and write and eventually be able to leave the system that is sort of imprisoning you yeah because it, it does 
it when you do have those abilities and you do have that education it does open up so many more possibilities for you and for what you can do and so for him in his own personal life he built business he learned how to work but in very specific skills and so eventually then he was able to use the experiences he had working um to write and then to make films and so he i think one of the things that's really um not this doesn't make him unique a lot of people are like this but i think one of the things that made him a good storyteller is the fact that he used personal experiences to craft characters like he's telling stories that he really knows about yeah obviously and and i think that just existing as a black man in Mm -hmm. um in the early part of the 20th century (laughs) is you know he definitely experiences discrimination he definitely experienced um uh you know all the levels of discrimination too and one of the things i think is is interesting about um within our gates particularly is uh is the way that it doesn't not just depicts black people but there's a lot of variation mm-hmm. um so you've got like and i think it's within our gates and i might be mixing films here uh we've got a black preacher who is basically in the pay of the white people uh and is is sort of key, essentially saying that you know black people are meant to be poor or black people shouldn't be learning things like how to read or how to write and stuff like that and and so you also get these depictions of black characters who are either in cahoots with the sort of white overclass um or are for some reason trying to keep other black people down they're trying Mm -hmm. to stop them from improving their situations they're trying to stop them from um you know engaging with other white people yeah well and he he does that he one of the things that he does is actually show different um different skin tones and lighter black people um a lot of times are yeah they're the ones that are able to get ahead easier and you know people that are darker skinned uh, they struggle more and tend to have, you know, less education and things. So he, he un- not only understands that, obviously he understands that from just being alive, but, but he, he shows that he depicts that in really nuanced ways. And it's, it's interesting to see that as far back as 1920, that was being put into film. Yeah. And I mean, I, th- I think that, probably uh he he might be accused of colorism of Mm -hmm. um kind of you know depicting so if you have lighter skin you're more likely to get ahead if you have darker skin you're more likely to be poor or um and sometimes sometimes in his films villainized uh and so that's that's an issue definitely but i i think that it is definitely engaging with the way that racism works and i'm not certain that he ever made a film that is directly about black characters passing for white but he certainly shows so for instance sylvia in um in within our gates is lighter skinned because uh according to the film and what you eventually find out is that her father is white Mm -hmm. um and so she has she she's lighter skinned she's urbanized so she has education um she's intelligent etc 
and she then gets an in and is a little bit more respected and treated differently um, by wealthy white people than she would be if she was darker skinned or if um, or if she was less well educated, right? And so the, there's a there's a good bit of tension there, but I think that he's probably depicting something that is is a reality in terms of the continued racism of white society, um, of treating black people with lighter skin differently than you treat black people with darker skin. Yeah, yeah. What other is there any other are there any other themes that you wanted to talk about? I mean, there's always that contrast like urban versus rural, uh, you know, you're talking about a lot of the time you've got uh, uh, people, what better well-educated people coming from the North, going down to the South, attempting to um, desegregate the society. Or oh educate. yeah, that's, there's definitely always clear delineations between the North and South yeah. in these films. <laughs> yeah, rape depictions of rape, depictions of lynchings and mob mm-hmm. violence. Um, he he kind of doesn't flinch away from that in, in in what he is willing to show and and definitely again su- and I think it's surprising for some of us who have not seen a lot of these kinds of films from this period. Um, very often, if you see mob violence in in films from this period, you're usually talking about white people. Right. Uh, in this case, you know, you're talking about, there's a very deliberate things like black people be, are being lynched in some of his films. Black people are either murdered or almost to be murdered. And he shows the terror of that and he gets very much into that experience. And it's, it's terrifying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which of course it would be, but it's just so unusual to see that <laughs> from a film in the 1920s. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. And, and he very specifically wants to um make the viewer feel that and feel that fear because he knows that some of the people that are watching his movies are white and he wants them to understand um not just that that's wrong but why you know why it's so particularly insidious and terrifying yeah um, and, and I think I think that we do have to say, and we mentioned this in the last episode that we recorded, we're two white ladies. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we're talking about this. We're obviously we're not talking about this from our own lived experiences. Uh, we're just kind of talking about this in terms of what we understand. But again, I think that as white people, it is important that we have seen these films in addition to something like Birth of a Nation, because it's good to know that great art was being made by black people exactly that that there was actually reaction against this Mm -hmm. yeah and i mean if you want to understand better obviously i can never understand what the experience of a black person is like in america but to have some insight into that we need to be watching the stories that are given to us by the people who have lived it, not by people like mm-hmm. us who haven't and are just basing it on what we've heard or seen. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, anything else you wanted to talk about? Not, no, not about Oscar Michaud. I mean, I, I think that, again, um, a lot of these films are available. So a lot of them are, are in the public domain. So they're available on mm-hmm. YouTube and archive.org. Um, they're also in very good prints on the Criterion channel right now. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and they're all worth watching. I actually, I have had uh, Michaud's Body and Soul on my queue for ages and I still haven't watched it and I really <laughs> need to. 
Yeah, I've got that whole collection in there. And I, I feel like those are, they've been there for a long time. So I don't think they're going away anytime soon, but you never know. The nice thing is Criterion usually is really good about letting us know when stuff is going to be leaving the channel. Yes. So keep an eye out for that. But um, but yeah, go watch these movies and 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 then poke around and see what else is there. I mean, this morning I turned on uh it was a short film it was about 20 minutes long and i wish that i had the filmmaker's name available but it was from 1960 and it's a documentary about integration it was an update on like this is where integration's at right now in 1960 by a black female filmmaker and it was really interesting and it was pulling together speeches from like martin luther king and some other activists at the time and just talking about like yeah this is how things are not great <laughs> and and it was just this thing that i randomly came across on criterion because i was just looking around at what else they had there and there's a lot there's short films there's big collections of short films and features and all kinds of stuff and they have a really good um, collection especially now for black history month yeah so Basically, what we're saying is what has apparently become our new tagline. Watch more movies. <laughs> watch different movies. Like, actually seek them out. Because that that's the thing. So many of these, is, you know, you just look at the AFI list. You know, best 100 mm -hmm. films ever made or whatever. And those are good. And there's nothing wrong with a lot of those films. But very often, they, they barely scratch the surface of what is actually out there. And very often, they just repeat the same films. Right. Um, it's like, yeah, definitely see Casablanca. Like, it's a great film. Um, but also see a whole bunch of others. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Just, you you already like movies. Go like more of them. That's, that's what it comes down to. So, uh, on that happy note, thank you so much to those who have been with us on this journey. Um, we would like to thank our patrons who are such huge supporters of the show. And we really appreciate, we appreciate all of our listeners. Um, we especially appreciate the folks that help keep the lights on. Um, so big shouts out to Adriana, Ollie, Heather, James, Kathleen, Cariata, Mason, Matt, Matthew, Michelle, Monty, Nanina, Nicole, Robert, Robert, Steve, Sharon, Tao, and Will. So thank you all so much. If you would like to become one of them, you can go to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash citizen dame. We have some, you get early access to episodes. We have bonus content there. Uh, we have a new bonus episode on Judas and the Black Messiah that we just recorded this week. And that will be up by the time you're listening to this episode. So you can go there and check it out. And um, we have some, big events that are going to be coming up. Um, we're going to start doing some screening parties and things like that. So very exclusive. Only a few people get to hang out with us, you know? So, uh, we're so anyway. cool too. yes, we're <laughs> super cool. <laughs> and we're very funny. Um, you think you know our personalities from this podcast? You should see us offline. Seriously. Anyway, um, if you don't want to subscribe and, and do things that way, but you want to help us out, you can go to our Ko-Fi, which is ko-fi.com slash citizen dame and just 
you know, throw in a couple dollars here or there if you want to. Of course, none of this is is required. We just, you know, we just love doing this. And um, we don't personally make any money off of it. This Everything that, that comes in just goes to um, supporting the show. Um, we also have our Zazzle store, zazzle.com slash citizen dame pod. You can get t-shirts and masks and all kinds of stuff. And we're going to be having new stuff there. I know I always promise this and then it takes months and then I finally get stuff done, but it's coming. I, I promise. Um, along with our new logo that we're still working on too. Um, but anyway, you can also just enjoy our work because we're good and we are smart and we know what we're doing. So <laughs> you can find our website, citizendamepod.com, where we have reviews. Lauren just reviewed some cool stuff. I've got some things that I've been working on and more stuff that I keep pledging to do and never get around to. But I'm, I'm trying. I'm doing better. It's coming. <laughs> so anyway um so yeah citizendamepod.com you can also email us citizendamepod at gmail.com if you have questions comments thoughts um you want to send us stuff you know whatever <laughs> so and of course our social media we're on twitter and instagram at citizendamepod we are also available individually lauren where are you at i am on twitter and instagram at lh business and I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Karen M. Peterson. So thank you so much for listening. Y'all rock. You're the best. Go enjoy the day and watch a lot of movies. Bye. Oh, come on, baby. Give pop to a little kid, please. Never again. Oh, baby, I thought you agreed to forget what I done done to you. Forget? But it's hurting like the devil. Say, when I think about you deliberately putting your big fist in my face, I'll never forget. Sometimes I feel like killing you.